such a beautiful ministry. The hand to use nuclear weapons against anyone who tries to intervene. I've been uh, listening to Putin's speeches and interviews for years. He's an extremely articulate speaker. I listen to him to stay up on what's going on and also to expand my Russian vocabulary a little bit. He's always been cunning. He's a shield and a sword, the sovereignty and the goodness of God. I want to read a statement, not from myself, but from the Lord Himself, regarding geopolitics and the wicked schemes of wicked rulers in the world. This is from Psalm 2, and this is a manifesto of sovereignty given by the King of kings to earthly kings. Psalm chapter 2, why are the nations in an uproar? and the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. Christ, as is verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. 
Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is a higher king than the wicked ones of this earth. And this is his manifesto. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we need to remember uh, when we're encountering geopolitical troubles, uh, the sovereignty of God, the king of all kings. Secondly, we need to remember that God is not only sovereign, he's good. So we have no reason to worry, to fear, or to lose heart. I'm reminded my heart has been drawn this week to Psalm 46, which just talks about the goodness of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is something that we rely on at about 3 o'clock in the morning. This morning I was talking to uh, my best friend from Ukraine. Um, He and uh, a bunch of families from their church were trying to get some of their pregnant women and little children out of danger. Uh, One of uh, those young ladies was, uh, when she was a kid, was uh, one of the kids of the family that stayed with us in the first Russian invasion, lived with us for six months. She's now grown up, married, and and is pregnant with her first child. She's about ready to give birth. And when I was talking to them, they were stuck on the side of the road in a traffic jam, uh, you know, worried that she might go into labor and um, didn't make it. They had to turn back, so uh, not exactly sure where they are at the moment, but... um, Nothing I can do. So this is what we remember. God is our refuge and strength. I can't be present, but he is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the, be- the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is the refuge of any believer in any country, in any circumstance, at any time, knowing that God is sovereign. He is good. He is a very present help in times of trouble. And as I spoke to my friend, as they were uh, needing to turn back, that's what he was relying upon. So we have a sovereign God, a God who is good, and that is our hope. So we can respond with faith, hope, and love. We can face any time, whether times of peace and prosperity or times of war and pestilence, which is what we're in now, with faith, with hope, and with love. We can, as James puts it, to return to our passage for this morning in James 1, we can consider it all joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So we can consider it all joy when we face various trials. And last week we looked at two of the four lessons in verses 12 through 18. We looked at 
the triumph of a godly response to trials and temptations in verse 12, and we looked at the tragedy of an ungodly response to trials and temptations in verses 13 through 16. This morning, we're going to cover the remaining two, which is the trap of blaming God for trials and temptations, and then the treasure of God's goodness to those who are enduring trials and temptations. So the trap of blaming God, and then the treasure of trusting God, the last two of the four lessons that we can learn from verses 12 through 18. So let's jump right into number three. Uh, we've got a lot to cover, and uh, we, have, uh, we have the incredible blessing and, and thrill of celebrating baptisms at the end of the service today. So we have a little bit of limited time, so buckle up. We're going to move fast, and we're going to—is that, that not common? Okay. Anyway, turn to verse 13, and we better jump into this. We need to avoid the trap of blaming God for trials and temptations. Verse 13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Don't fall for the trap of blaming God for trials and temptations. As we mentioned last week, human beings are expert blame shifters. When we sin, we blame anyone and everyone except for ourselves. And so James emphasizes in verse 13 that we should not blame God. And then in verse 14, he tells us we should blame ourselves. In verse 14, he says that the real cause of temptation is a person's own evil desires. He says, don't say God is tempting you. He says, verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when Your own lust conceives, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So James tells us what the real cause of temptation is. It is our own evil desires. But we talked about that last time, but I wanted to go back to verse 13, because before he tells us what the cause of temptation is, he wants to really pound the fact that the cause of temptation is not God. He wants us to know what the cause of temptation is not before he tells us what it is. James in verse 13 tells us that we can be 100% sure that our temptations do not come from God in any way, shape, or form. In verse 13, he begins with a strong command. It's expressed in a negative present imperative verb of command, which basically means stop saying this. Now, James is being strong here. Again, he's writing to refugees. He's writing to those who are in terrible trials. And he's telling them, stop saying that God is tempting you. Everyone should stop blaming God for any temptations which come from your own evil desires. But I want you to notice something that's maybe not immediately evident in the English translation, but which is in the Greek James here does not just say that people should stop saying that God tempts them directly. Most people recognize that, right? God doesn't directly tempt. But James goes further here, and he says that people should stop saying that God tempts them even indirectly. In certain constructions and contexts in Greek, there are two ways to write the phrase tempted by, right? If you're writing the phrase tempted by, you could use two different prepositions, If you use the preposition hupo, you're describing a direct action, direct temptation. Someone with immediate agency, direct agency, tempting purposefully and directly. That would be how you would 
you would use the word hupo to say that. But if you use a different preposition, the preposition apo, you'd be describing an indirect action, something that someone does but using other means indirectly. James uses hupo in verse 14. The one that describes direct action occurs in verse 14 where he says that each one is tempted by, that's hupo, his own sin, his own evil desires. So your own evil desires directly tempt you. It's hupo, it's direct. But that's not the preposition he uses back in verse 13. There he uses apo. And he uses apo to assert that we should not say that God tempts us even indirectly. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted even indirectly by God. Even apo God. This is significant. It's significant that he uses apo for the phrase tempted by in verse 13 and then switches to hupo for the same phrase in verse 14. He's contrasting the direct temptation of our evil desires and then denying that God is involved in any way, even indirectly. James uses apo to exclude even what is called remote agency or distant agency, not just direct agency, but any agency. God not only doesn't do the tempting, he doesn't send the tempters. He's neither the source nor the means of temptation. As James points out in verse 14, the source of temptation is in man, not in God. James is drawing a stark line between good and evil. And he's saying, as we're going to see in verse 17 through 18, that it is only that which is good and perfect which comes from God. Anything which is evil or dark comes from our own evil desires. Man is responsible for sin. In no way, shape, or form is God responsible. James says in verse 13 that God doesn't even indirectly tempt us. And this has significant theological and practical implications. Especially because James gives such a strong command. Stop saying this. And that tells you that there were those who were saying it or thinking it, teaching it. I want to talk a little bit about the dangers of a hyper form of Calvinism. The line between a biblical belief in the sovereignty of God and a erroneous view of hyper-Calvinistic thinking, that red line is the line of double predestination. And this verse provides a direct refutation, one of many, that refutes the idea of the hyper-Calvinists who teach double predestination. What's double predestination, you ask? Well, this is the idea, I, someone came up to me after service and said, yeah, that's what I was taught growing up. And for years, I feared that I wasn't saved. Even though I believed, I feared that God had willed me to destruction, that he had predestined me to hell. And so even if I repented, even if I believed, I, I was lost. That's double predestination, taught, sadly, by a significant number of people. The basic idea of double predestination is that God is willing that some should perish. The scripture says directly, God is not willing that any should perish. God is not willing that any should perish. Well, double predestined says, no, he is. He is willing that some should perish. 
Double predestination says that not only does God will their destruction, he sovereignly works to ensure it. According to the hyper-Calvinists, God uses his sovereignty to make sure the reprobates perish in their sins. Now, when the obvious objection to this teaching is raised, that this would make God the author of evil, the answer is given, well, no, no, God's not the author of evil because he does this indirectly through other means. That is exactly what James is denying, that God does this even indirectly. To all such ideas, James thunders, let no one say that he is tempted by God, whether directly or indirectly. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. End of story. Now, you might possibly say, but wait a minute, you know, The doctrine of election and predestination is taught in Scripture. Of course it is. We believe in what is called single predestination. Not double, but single predestination. What does that mean? It means that God wills to save. He doesn't will to destroy. In his great love, God sovereignly chose to draw sinners, to open their eyes, to call them to repentance and to save them, to snatch them like brands out of the burning. When humanity rejected him, when they went their own way and were tumbling towards destruction, in his great mercy and love, he reaches down and snatches brands from the burning. That is election unto salvation. But while the Bible teaches that God does predestine to salvation, it does not teach that he predestines to condemnation. Rather, condemnation is universally described in the Bible as the tragic result of a person's own choice. This is the responsibility of man. Salvation is of God. Condemnation is of man. Salvation is of God. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then when his evil desires have conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's how condemnation happens. That's the chain of condemnation. What's the chain of salvation? The chain of salvation is that those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. That's predestination under salvation. But the chain which leads, the chain of events which leads to salvation is from God. The chain of events which leads to condemnation are all of man. Salvation is based on God's choice, condemnation based on man's. Whenever the Bible answers the question, why, are, why is anyone saved? The answer is always because God graciously chose to rescue them. But whenever the Bible answers the question, why are some condemned? The answer is always they wickedly chose to reject God. So in salvation, God initiates and man responds in faith. In condemnation, man initiates by rebellion and God responds with justice. So there are important theological implications to verse 13. But there are also practical implications. It means, as we said last week, that we are fully responsible for our own sin. We can't blame God. We can't blame our parents, our DNA, our circumstances, or anyone or anyone else. It's not, you know, people say, well, is it, is it you know, the person's DNA? Is it their upbringing? No, it is their own evil desires. End of story. Our own evil desires give birth to sin. 
So it doesn't matter what excuse you make for your sin. Verse 13 tells us it's a bad excuse. You just need to lock that into your mind. Whatever excuse you are making for your sin is a bad excuse. I sometimes have to stop myself because, you know, when I'm struggling with sin, I have, you know, the justification mechanisms come in. Well, you know, because this is how, you know, I'm, you know I have all these reasons and excuses and all that. And then I have to say, stop. I have to tell myself, stop. There's never an excuse for sin. This is wrong. I must repent. I got to take full responsibility. And I need to repent. Any excuse is a bad excuse. Proverbs 19.3 says, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. See, we, we blame God. Our own folly ruins us, and then our heart rages against the Lord. Your own folly in succumbing to the temptations caused by your own evil desires is what brings you into sin. So you need to stop blame shifting, take full responsibility, repent, and seek forgiveness of God and of whomever you have wronged. Take full responsibility for your actions, full. Not just your actions, but your desires that caused them. From start to finish, it was you. I always like to remind people, who, who was it that yelled? It was you. Well, why'd you yell? I was angry. Well, who was angry? I, well, well, my brother or my sister or you know, my parents or my, no. Who got angry? You did. Who yelled? You did. Right? Who, you know, who raged? Who lusted? Who, 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 who? No one twisted your arm. It was you. It was me. So we need to take responsibility. Now look at the second half of verse 13 where James gives us two reasons why it is impossible for God to tempt anyone either directly or indirectly. He's going to talk about God's character and then God's conduct. It's impossible for God to be tempted by evil or to tempt anyone because of his character and his conduct. Look at the statement about God's character. Verse 13, it says, God cannot be tempted by evil. It's impossible. He cannot be tempted. His character is holy. Moral perfection, total separation from evil. He is untemptable and praise the Lord that he is. Isaiah 6.3, the angels call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Revelation 4.8, they cry out again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and is and who is to come. Hebrews 7.26 says about Jesus, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. None. He is holy. His character is holy. Therefore, he cannot be tempted by evil. Hebert says, quote, God is unsusceptible to evil. Evil never has any appeal for him. It is repugnant and abhorrent to him. The fact that God is untemptable by evil is the foundation for the Christian belief in a moral universe. What is he saying? He's saying, look, if God was temptable, can you imagine we'd all be hopeless? We'd have no hope that good will prevail in the end. You know, maybe God, you know, will get tempted and he'll turn evil. No. James is saying God cannot be tempted by evil. This is the foundation of our hope. Because the sovereign one is also the one who is good. And his goodness is unchangeable and unshakable. Therefore, though the storms rage, though the kings rage, though the nations of the earth are in uproar, in an uproar we will not fear because we know the solid rock, the unmovable rock of God's sovereign goodness. We have hope. 
because God cannot be tempted by evil. He is holy and that will never change. This is then manifested not only in his character but in his conduct. Verse 13 at the end says, he himself does not tempt anyone. It's an emphatic and absolute statement. No temptation comes from God, directly or indirectly. All of them come from our own evil desires. Who is to blame? Not God, it is the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are to blame. So verse 13 has taught us that both God's character and his conduct are 100% ever and always holy, righteous, good, and loving. So beloved, don't fall into the trap of blaming God for your temptations. Let's put responsibility where responsibility is due. Who rebelled? Man. Who sinned? Man. Who is deceived? Man. Not the Lord. Don't fall into the trap of blaming God for temptations. Well, that was our third lesson. Let's now move on to the fourth lesson, which is not just the trap of blaming God, but now the treasure of trusting God, the treasure of God's goodness when we endure trials and temptations. Look at Verses 17 through 18. By the way, in verse 16, there's a transition, right? He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren, right? So don't be tricked into blaming God and don't be deceived into failing to realize how good God really is. He, and he's about to share with us this great and encouraging truth. Verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, or the better translation here is caused us to be born again by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Sin comes from man, good things come from God. I want you to see how verses 17 and 18 fit in the context of chapter 1. I want you to notice the connection between verse 5 and verse 17. Remember back when we studied verse 5, we talked about how the text there says that God is the giving one who generously gives to all without finding fault. Well, that idea of God being a giving God, of giving being inherent to his character is repeated in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. He is the giving one. He gives generously to all without finding fault, is Verse 5 says. So throughout chapter 1, James emphasizes over and over again that God is a giver, a giver of good things. And James is about to say in verse 18 that the greatest gift God has given us is the gift of salvation. As John 3.16 puts it, God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. And he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So there's a connection between the giving one in verse five and the giver in, of all good things in verse 17. Next, notice also the contrast between what God gives birth to and what sin gives birth to. The same word for giving birth, apokuyo, the same word apokuyo appears in verse 15 and in verse 18. And so there's a, a really stark contrast being made here. In verse 15, it says that sin gives birth to death. And now in verse 18, it says that God gives the good gift of salvation. He brings us forth, or we are born again by the word of truth. James is contrasting what sin does and what the Savior does. Sin gives birth to death. The Savior gives new birth unto eternal life. So verses 17 through 18 are extremely important because they are the conclusion that James has been building to all the way from verse 2. Why can we consider it all joy when we face trials? Because 
God is the giver of good gifts, and he has given us salvation. Let's look now at all of the specific content content of verses 17 through 18. First, look at the beginning of verse 17. James is going to say that how God gives is good and what God gives is good. The words given and gift in verse 17 are the same root word. They just, same word with different suffixes attached. If you're reading the NIV, you don't notice that the word gift is repeated twice because the NIV kind of summarizes the thought rather than translating word for word. But really, the word gift appears here twice. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Well, why does he repeat it twice? Well, that first word, given, is the word dosis. It emphasizes the act of giving. And the second word uses the same root, but a different suffix, dorema, and that emphasizes the gift itself. So one emphasizes the act of giving, and the other emphasizes what is given. And James is saying that the way God gives is good. He gives in a good way, right? So think about it. I could have a good gift, right? Let's say I had a good gift, but, you know, Terry's sitting there, and I just wing it at him, right? And I, you know, I just beat him right in the forehead, right? Maybe it's a good gift, but I gave it to him in a bad way. No, James is saying, look, what God gives is good, and the way he gives it is also good. He gives good things through good means, The adjectives here, when he says every good gift given, that's agathe, it's beneficial. It's saying that the way God gives is beneficial for us. And then he says, and every perfect gift, that word perfect is teleon. It means complete, something which fully meets our needs and the purposes that God has for us. Varner notes, quote, James desires his readers to know that every action of God's giving is good and every result of God's giving is complete. How he gives is good, and what he gives is good. How he gives is beneficial, and what he gives is complete. He doesn't leave off anything we need. As Paul says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. His giving is beneficial, and his giving is sufficient. Then look at the second half of verse 17, where it teaches us that God is holy and he is immutable. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's a Jewish expression for God's holiness. With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He's immutable. He doesn't change. As the hymn says, thou changest not. God is holy and he is immutable. This is our hope. He's righteous and good and that has not ever changed, is not changing, and will never, ever change change. Hebert says there is never any dimming of the light of God's holiness that would make it possible for him to become the tempter of men. As first John puts it in verse one, chapter one, verse five, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's holy. He is immutable. He's absolutely consistent and therefore he's absolutely trustworthy. You know, someone can be a you know, a good guy and you rely on him and then, you know, he changes, becomes unreliable. The Old Testament, one of the times the prophets described this unreliability of man of being like someone who leans on a stick and the stick breaks and now the jagged edge shoots through his hand. He leaned on something unstable and what he leaned on winds up hurting him. God's never like that. He's a rock of refuge. His righteousness, his holiness is absolutely unshakable, unchangeable, and therefore it is an adequate foundation for you to build your life on, your hope on. 
God is holy, he's immutable. Then look at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The beginning of verse 18 says that God willed our salvation and that he gave us new birth. What he willed is our salvation. What he gave is the new birth. The phrase he chose, right, in the exercise of his will, this is thrown forward in the Greek for emphasis. It's saying that this is what God willed. I just got done talking to you about man's will and what it produces. It produces death. But here's what God's will produces. It produces life. What he willed is our salvation. And what he gave is the new birth. It says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth or caused us to be born again. He gave birth to us, it says. Now, I want you to notice something, by the way. Um, Again, a little bit referring back to kind of the uh, hyper-Calvinism issue. Notice that it says that God, the exercise of God's choice, is directed towards the new birth, not the atonement. Not the atonement. God's choice is directed towards the new birth, not the atonement. Romans 8 says that those he predestined, he calls. Not those he predestined, he provides a limited atonement for. No, those he predestines, he calls. God's sovereignty is directed towards the new birth, not the atonement. Christ provided an infinite sacrifice for sin. It is sufficient for all. But because of our human depravity, we reject the Messiah. So God graciously chooses to give new birth. This word birth is the same word again that appeared back in verse 15. In contrast to what sin gives birth to, God's grace gives birth to life. What he willed is our salvation. What he gave is the new birth. And that brings us to the end where it really is the heart of the gospel here in verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The means of salvation is the word of truth. And the goal of salvation is the new creation. Notice the means. He brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth is the means by which God brings us to salvation. John 8 says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We are born again through or by the word of truth. This is how God saves, the means he uses to save. He sends out the effectual call through his word. He draws sinners, he opens their eyes, and he calls them unto salvation. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He gave us, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's the means. Well, what's the purpose? He says, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. That we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures or of all he created. The goal of salvation is the new creation. I want to talk about this just briefly. This phrase, that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures, should bring our minds back to what are first fruits. Well, first fruits was the, the first portion of the harvest was taken and offered in worship to God. And you would 
offer the first fruits before you would go and gather in the rest of the harvest. James here is saying that we, believers, those who are saved, are the first fruits of all creation. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about something that is referred to throughout Scripture. This is referring, the, the word he uses here, right? All creation, ktisamatan, uh, is used three other times, and it speaks of creation in its entirety, the, the universe as a whole. James is saying that the rebirth of believers is like the first fruits which precedes the rest of the created universe in a great harvest. Well, what is he talking about? Remember, back in the garden, man was given rulership over the, the earth. He was to govern it in God's behalf. And so when man fell, the whole creation fell under a curse. That's why it is through the salvation of man that the curse on the creation will be lifted. So you want, you want to see things restored? You want to see things made new? You long for the day when, like when Revelation says, where God says, behold, I'm making everything new. When the curse will be lifted, when all things will be made new, then share the gospel because it is as the first fruits come in and when the whole first fruits have been gathered that then God will bring that great day when all things will be made new. The new heavens and the new earth will come. There will be a new creation of the whole universe and all will be very, very good, perfect in every way. Since man's fall brought the curse on the whole creation, so must man's salvation come before the curse can be lifted. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among all creation or among his creatures. This is glorious. This is glorious. God will make all things new. This present darkness will come to an end. And God has in store for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs any temporal sufferings. It's what my friends are holding on to in the dark hour of their need right now. What has James taught us? Four lessons. The triumph of a godly response, the tragedy of an ungodly response, the trap of blaming God, and the treasure of trusting in God's goodness. Lord, we thank you for these four lessons. They are so needed uh, for our personal trials. Lord, they're so needed uh, by our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine our friends. Help them to remember your sovereignty and your goodness. Be their ever-present help in times of trouble. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that in the exercise of your will, you gave us new birth through the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among all your creation. We come now, Lord, to the celebration of that very fact of your saving work of grace in the lives of of our dear brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, we thank you for the two that were baptized first service and for those that will be baptized now. Be with them as they share with us the glorious goodness of your grace in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.